Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to We Just Like to Talk. I'm your host, Becky. And I'm Kara. This is a podcast for easy listening about hard subjects. Today's topic is... The Social Dilemma. We just watched The Social Dilemma. If our listeners haven't seen it yet, do you mind giving them a little bit of a brief summary? What? Sorry, I was just scrolling through Instagram. Are we podcasting already? (laughs) So The Social Dilemma is about how social media apps and networks are increasingly consuming our attention. And that has quite negative consequences when it comes to both our attention span as well as our ability to interact and empathize with other people. So the main thrust of the documentary is that this has happened over the past decade as a result of the tech companies that have built these platforms making decisions about how to build like algorithms that choose what you see in your feed, basically geared towards selling advertising and keeping you engaged, keeping you on the platform, not necessarily geared towards what's healthiest or best for you as a person. Mm -hmm. Well said. So throughout the documentary, we get the perspective from former employees who were making these decisions, as you've said, Uh, people that used to work at Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, etc. And so they're giving us a bit of like the behind the scenes Uh, look, peek behind the curtain, Mm -hmm. uh, as one might say. So then also throughout the documentary, we had a bit of a dramatization of how phones are affecting not only individuals, but also family units, um, our relationships with others, and yeah, how it all plays out on our moods, um, on what we do and how we do things. So I think that those those two things combined really made for a very compelling uh, story and documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something I really appreciated is that it approaches the issues from multiple levels and perspectives. Very early in the documentary, the uh, director, I guess, asks somebody who's being interviewed, what do you think the main problem is? And the person being interviewed mm. says, well... <laughs> There's really, it's hard, I'm having a hard time coming up with an answer because there's really like so many problems that are interconnected. So that mm-hmm. gives you a sense of like the scope of this issue because any one of us who has a device and is on a social media network has had this experience of you just get stuck scrolling through your phone and suddenly, you know, an hour or two has passed and you haven't done anything or you mm-hmm. get stuck looking at images or reading messages and you get trapped in like this cycle of negative or unproductive thinking. And often we fall into the trap of thinking this is a 
problem solely with our behavior. You know, all I have to do is get better at managing my time and get better at not being so addicted to my device. And we forget or we don't realize that the way that these platforms are designed actually encourages that behavior. So you can have the best of intentions not to lose yourself to Instagram for an hour, but you you need to understand that Instagram is intentionally built to try to get you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's not a matter of self-control or motivation. It's just everybody is everybody falls prey to their phones or or these websites in general. I know that for myself sometimes I need to go and check, you know, a Facebook message cuz I forgot to respond to someone or whatever. I mean, this literally just happened to me the other day. So I go in on Facebook and I get completely sidetracked by posts and then other things, marketplace, this and that. And then I literally had to stop myself after 20 minutes and say, hey, wait a second, what was I actually doing on Facebook? Like, what was my intention of actually going on here and and stopping myself doing the task and then and then saying, OK, I need to get off this this platform because it's like they suck you in mm-hmm. it's crazy it's this dopamine hit of you know uh, maybe even on the other on the other side of the coin it's like you're bored or you want or you feel a certain way and so you want to get you want to alleviate these feelings sadness or frustration whatever something that's making you uncomfortable okay so what are you going to do about it instead of actually sometimes sitting with these feelings and thinking about it or doing something more productive, reading, calling a friend, whatever it might be, you turn to your phone and it's like this catch-22. Yeah, so one of the things I really appreciate about the documentary is how it it works on different levels so that it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter what your current level of understanding is, you can get something from this documentary. So for example, mm-hmm. I am very tech savvy. I spend a lot of time reading about this. You know, I have a background in terms of programming and stuff. I know how algorithms work in general. And I, I pay a lot of ten- attention to what's going on with this kind of stuff in our society. Even so, there were things in this documentary that, you know, I didn't know, or at least I hadn't really thought about it in that way. So mm-hmm. I really like how it starts with the basics of like these, there's these algorithms, which are basically computer programs that people have designed that are deciding what to show you. And they decide what to show you based on what they think is going to keep you engaged. That is their mission is to make you stay on the platform for as long as possible so they can keep showing you ads and keep influencing you to act in certain ways. And it really made me think about the fact that I'm aware of this idea of a filter bubble. I talk about it with my students, this idea that depending on what the algorithm has learned about you, it's only ever going to show you certain ideas and certain voices. Mm -hmm. But I've never really thought about the fact that once you're in that filter bubble, you don't know what it is that you're missing out on because you can't Mm -hmm. see outside the bubble. And it made me think about this idea that it's like these algorithms are really hard to challenge and defeat because everything you do to try to push back just becomes more data for the algorithm to adjust itself to you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like this like tech monster. Yeah. Like you said, that just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Yeah. I think along those same lines, there's a couple of things that, like you said, I, I was like a little bit aware of, but I didn't realize like the extent of it. And it honestly just really made me hate Mark Zuckerberg. Like, I know he's not, I know it's not just one person that has created this problem. Sure. Like, it's, it's multiple things, it's multiple people, right? But it's just, like, the actions that he has taken, it's just, like, Facebook is the ultimate evil. I wrote down, like, a couple of examples, because I was just like, okay, I want to remember this. For example, as most people know, like, influencing the 2016 elections, it's like I knew that they had, but I didn't realize, like, how they did it or the extent of it, right? Right. Well, and here's the thing is, do most people know that? Because I think a lot of people get their news from Facebook, and Facebook is probably not promoting things into your feed that are critical of Facebook. Like fake news? (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And also... Also, how people can believe and buy into conspiracy theories. To me, I was like, come on, like, how how can people actually believe these things? But the way that the documentary talks about it and how people go on here and then, then the information is filtered and then they get, you know, quote unquote, fake news delivered to them. But they take it as, no, 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 this is actually legitimate, real news and real mm-hmm. information. And that kind of just like perpetuates whatever they were thinking. And then there's also, you know, groups for conspiracy theories and and that sort of thing. So one of the things that I didn't know was that some of these conspiracy theories, well, I kind of had an idea, but not the extent of it was just how it's affected the, the pandemic and people's health in general, right? Like, for example, there's this whole article on all the conspiracy theories that have, that Facebook has, um sort of perpetuated so for example like false cures for the coronavirus such as oregano oil and garlic i'm like Mm -hmm. people actually believed this i mean we can link um the article in the show notes because i think people would might find this entertaining and hopefully they you know they they take it with a grain of salt and they don't actually take it as news (laughs) yeah i think you've hit on a really important point which is that we often are under the mistaken impression that Facebook and other social networks are neutral, that they're just these platforms for delivering us content. And whatever information we see, whatever news or articles we see, we see those because those are the most relevant or the most popular or the most important things for us to see. But popularity doesn't mean accuracy. And... Mm What the social dilemma makes clear is that far from being neutral, these platforms are making decisions about what to show us. Those decisions are not based on accuracy. They're not based on what's best for us. They're based on what's going to keep us engaged and make them the most money. So if you get most of your information through these platforms, then even if you end up curating your sources in terms of who you follow and stuff you're still running the risk that these platforms are going to hide or obscure things that are most important to you and show you things that are less reliable because that's what's going to get you to stay engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, who doesn't Absolutely. want to watch a good conspiracy theory video 
versus <laughs> watching somebody patiently explaining the science of the coronavirus and why you should wear a mask. Mm-hmm. We're living yep. in anti-intellectual times. We're living in a society where people are increasingly being told, don't trust experts, don't listen to experts. You know, everybody's got an agenda and you should just mm-hmm. listen to your gut and listen to your common sense. So these platforms, I would argue, have a responsibility to do things like stop fake news. But every time you see this like footage from like uh, American Senate hearings with Mark Zuckerberg in a looking uncomfortable in a suit and, you know, the senators say things like, well, what's Facebook going to do to stop this? And Zuckerberg basically doesn't have a good answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of just squirming there. Yeah, it really just shows how somebody's ego and somebody's drive to make an app a certain way or, or the way that they envision it. It's just it's so beyond powerful. I think this is an important time to remember that when Mark Zuckerberg started creating Facebook at Harvard, um, he did so as a clone of Hot or Not. So Facebook's original idea was it was going to show you, you know, images of hot girls and uh, you you would get to rate who's hot and who's not hot. That was that was how Facebook started. You nice. know, like we we have this stereotype of these tech bros who start off mm-hmm. in their college dorm rooms or in their parents garages or whatever. And I think it's. It's relevant to note that most of the people interviewed in The Social Dilemma are white men. White men predominantly got us into this problem because when you have a certain segment of the population overrepresented in making these decisions about how to build these platforms, that contributes to the harm that they create. You know, I'm not saying that Facebook and Google and Microsoft would be less evil if we add in more black people and trans people and women and gay people, etc., to their boards. But I think that the problems that we would have to deal with would be different in scope. So I am slightly older than you, Becky, and uh, so I have. I basically say that I've been online since 2004. I Long remember, time. yeah, very distinctly, <laughs> March 2004. I got an. Wow, M- I love that you have a month. Oh yeah, I got an MSN account because I was jealous <laughs> of my brother, who's younger than me, and he had a Hotmail account, and I went to my dad yeah. and I'm like, "It's not fair. He's younger than me." why does he have a Hotmail account and I don't? Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, fine, you can have a Hotmail account too. Like, it's not an issue. So I got a Hotmail account. And then the same day, I'm like, well, I want to have a website. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So I, at the time, creating websites required a little bit more work than it does today. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for a free account on a service called GeoCities, which was run by Yahoo. And I went to a tutorial website that taught me how to write HTML, which is the language that web pages are made in. And Mm -hmm. I learned that in about a week. I learned the basics. 
And I started making my own website completely from scratch. And that's kind of what led me down, you know, the rabbit hole of learning like web technology and stuff. And I've been blogging on my website. I've moved it around a few times and I learned more technologies and I made my own blog. And I've been doing that continuously now since like roughly September of 2004. So back in that day, because Twitter launched in 2008, Facebook opened up to the world in 2007. So in the years prior to social media, if you wanted to put your voice out there, you had to make your own website. That was it. There were mm-hmm. no real like big platforms where you could just go and say something and everybody could follow you. There were mm-hmm. message boards where you could have conversations sort of back and forth. There were chat rooms. But by and large, the web was more open. And one of the things that social networks have done is they've basically walled off the web into these different sections. So what this does is it gives Facebook or Twitter or Instagram more power because even if I decide, hmm, Facebook is evil, I want to disengage. When I do that, I leave behind all of my friends, all of the people who follow me, my ability to communicate with them, unless I'm in touch with them somewhere else, I lose those connections. So it's really hard for us to disengage from these platforms because what they've done is they've hijacked that open idea of the web and they've walled it off. So if you're talking on any one of these platforms, nobody can see that really unless they join that platform and start following you. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that again, it just it just brings back the point that you know studies have shown over and over and over again that there's this extremely strong correlation between the amount of social media that you use and mm-hmm. your unhappiness, and mm-hmm. the fact that you know, like I said before, you're bored, you're frustrated, whatever. It's like, how many times have you been in the lineup and you're waiting and you see people in front of you? What are they doing? They're not just standing there looking around. It's, okay, I'm waiting. I'm bored. I'm going to take out my phone. I'm going to stare at it Mm -hmm. because I have nothing else to look at, nothing else to do. I'm going to get that hit of dopamine and I'm going to compare myself to people on the internet. Um And what does that end up doing for your mental health? I think it's just slowly deteriorating Mm -hmm. how we not only feel in general, but also how we feel about ourselves. Like how many times have you gone on Instagram, maybe even Facebook, and compared your life to others, compared how you even look? I think Instagram is notorious for that, of this weird photoshopped body that has become the norm and has also then trickled into women getting more plastic surgery because they want to look like filters and you know they want to look like that influencer on instagram that they follow i remember passing on to you an article i think it was in the new yorker but i could be wrong i don't remember Mm -hmm. about that exact issue uh the journalist went and interviewed a plastic surgeon who basically gets a lot of clients these days who you know are like i want to look like this person on instagram (laughs) and yeah it's it's very there's something very artificial about it there's something very addictive about it i really liked how Mm -hmm. in the social dilemma 
uh, during one of the dramatizations, the mother of this family locks everybody's phone in a time-released container so that they Mm -hmm. can have dinner with their devices. And the daughter, who I guess is kind of like preteen age um, because she's in middle school, she literally like takes a hammer to the container Mm -hmm. and breaks it open to grab her phone so that she can find out who's been messaging her. Which, like, first off, I thought it was hilarious that the daughter put on safety glasses before she did this. Props to her <laughs> for being safe. But it's, like, it, it it's over the top, of course, but I don't think it's that over the top because some of us experience a fair amount of anxiety if we haven't been able to check our device lately. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about, like, these dopamine hits we habituate our brain to get those uh, at a certain frequency. And then when we go without them mm-hmm. because we've been away from our device, that can feel really terrible. Absolutely. So this brings up also an interesting topic is sort of like a digital detox. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, but I think it was sometime early last year where I was just so sick of, the pinging of my phone and the alerts and the messages and the notifications. Mind you, the only notifications that I do receive are from my messages. So that's either text message or WhatsApp. Um, And of course, if I have like an alarm set. But notifications from Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, I have none of that linked. So I'm not notified right away, Mm -hmm. which I think is healthy. But I was just feeling this this weird stress from my phone. So I felt like, okay, I need, a dig- I need to go on a digital detox. I shut off my phone for two whole days. I didn't turn it on the entire time. I remember I, I was telling you about it because I'm like, mm-hmm. we messaged quite a bit. We talk on the phone. I didn't want you to think that anything <laughs> happened to me. Same with my family. Yeah. Same with other friends that I uh, messaged consistently. So it kind of gave everyone like this warning. I said, you know, you can text me, but I won't be texting you back because my phone will be off for two days. Um, and it's so the the changes and how I felt about things was just so dramatic, even though it was only two days. Mm-hmm. It was like I had gone from being stressed from feeling like I constantly needed to check my phone every 10, 15 minutes to, okay, I don't have this weird feeling that I need to check something. So I was, I felt like I was more present. I felt less stressed. Uh, I felt like when I had those moments of feeling quote unquote bored, then I either sat with the feelings or I did something else. I was productive. I read. Um, I went for a walk. Uh, that sort of thing. So have you ever gone on a digital detox or have you considered going on one? I don't know if I've gone on a digital detox to the extreme that you describe. Mm-hmm. Certainly there have been times where I have been less able to access my phone for whatever reason for extended periods of time and that was fine i for a while when i back when i had my first smartphone it got to the point where it was just so slow that i just didn't want to use it that much 
Uh, but no, I I haven't I haven't really ever considered doing it completely like like you said. And I think where I would be coming from is I I can understand how good that feels in the moment, but mm-hmm. it's like what I would like to see more is like how how do we find more sustainable and balanced solutions because you can't mm-hmm. realistically detox permanently. I mean, some people do. Some people don't own cell phones. Some people aren't on social media. I get it. But mm-hmm. for most of us, especially with the jobs that we have, it's not realistic. And I mean, look at how the pandemic has changed things. Like, I imagine like even if you tried to do a digital detox tomorrow, you'd still have to like be checking your email on your computer and stuff. And mm-hmm. like we're forced to be connected now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what the social dilemma also is getting at is that these companies are very insidiously inserting themselves into our lives in ways that before we would have found very intrusive. So mm. think about like Amazon. Amazon is slowly infiltrating your house with Alexa on the Amazon Echo, suddenly listening to everything that you have to say. And mm-hmm. Amazon owns Ring, which is a smart doorbell that you can use that has a camera and stuff to see who's coming to your door. Um you know, Facebook owns Oculus, which is a VR uh, tool. Facebook owns Instagram, Instagram. and mm-hmm. uh, it, they um, they're constantly buying up these projects that we wouldn't necessarily associate with social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook at one point was planning to launch a dystopian universe. Right. That's what I don't want. That. That's what Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> wants. I mean. I loved that. I knew this beforehand, but I love that the documentary pointed this out in Mm -hmm. uh, some countries like India, Myanmar, other countries like that, where people Mm -hmm. primarily access the Internet through their mobile device because they just don't have computers. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are growing up and learning that Facebook is the Internet because Mm -hmm. Facebook pays the people who sell those devices to load the app on the phone so that when somebody buys it, they the person selling it to them says, here, let me set up your Facebook account. And that's all people access on their phone. They don't know or they're not really sure how to get onto the wider, more open internet. Facebook is the whole experience for them. And that's mm-hmm. so scary, especially because Facebook has this huge questionable uh, performance when it comes to like uh, censorship. Moral and ethics. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So just to go back to what you're saying about a digital detox, I love that that worked for you. I think I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build smaller detoxes into my Mm -hmm. days. So just being more deliberate about like when is screen time and when is not screen time. Mm -hmm. So like at work, my phone goes on to do not disturb automatically once my workday starts. And I, so when I have a chance, you know, if I take a quick break, yes, I might glance at my device uh, to see if anybody important, aka you, has texted me. Um, But I deliberately try to avoid like opening up Twitter, checking Facebook, because those are distractions that I don't want or need during the workday. And similarly, like when I come home, I found that lately, because I've been so tired, it's so tempting for me to just endlessly scroll through Twitter 
while I'm lying on my couch. Not because I'm interested in reading Twitter, but because getting off my couch is too hard. <laughs> So I just try to remind myself, it's like, okay, you know, when is the time that you're going to let yourself like kind of get lost in your device? And when is your time that you're not going to do that? I totally agree with you. I think building in these habits uh, into our daily lives, like yes, going on a digital detox isn't feasible all the time, right? And that's a bit of a temporary solution. But if you feel like you need it, then absolutely. Um, for me, I feel like, uh, being aware of how much screen time I'm using. Mm -hmm. So in most phones, I know at least in, uh, Apple phones, you have a screen time usage. So you can go in the app, see, uh, how long you're on your phone, which apps you're using the most. And also I, I recently looked into this and it's under see all activity, um, so it also tells you how many times a day you've picked up your phone. And let me tell you, Kara, <laughs> I looked at it recently and my mouth just dropped open. For instance, oof, this is so bad. I'm like already cringing. Yesterday, guess how many times I picked up my phone? 612. <laughs> okay, well, now you're making me feel way better. 81 times. Okay. Inside, it does tell you, okay, so you picked it up, but then what did you do with those pickups, right? Yeah. So I looked at Instagram a couple of times. I went into my uh, cloud library, which is where I access audiobooks and ebooks. Mm -hmm. I looked at my notes and I looked at my messages. Yeah, and then I also looked at other things like my health information. So am I constantly looking at, you know, Facebook and Instagram? Instagram more so, yes, but then I'm also using it for other reasons. So I find that this app is uh, super helpful. So, and your phone also can allow you to set time periods as well if you're not good at doing it yourself. Um, for me personally, I try to every single night, let's say beyond... 8 or 8.30, I put my phone away. I either put it on silent mode or I put it in a completely different room. And some of my friends make fun of me because they say, you know, I'll send you a text message at 8 or 8.30 and then I won't hear from you until the next day around 10. And I say 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I wanted to clarify that, not, not 10 p.m. the next day. Um, and I say to them, yes, because I value time spent with myself, time spent doing other things, time spent hanging out with people. I think I'm also very conscious of just putting my phone away when I'm hanging out with someone else. And I think you are as well. I know Thank whenever you. we hang out, <laughs> you know, we sort of put our phones away yeah. unless our parents are messaging us or we really need, we have something that's um, more pressing to do. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine. So we have so much more recorded, such an interesting discussion, that we've split this episode into two parts. This is the end of part one. If you have any thoughts, any comments or questions you'd like to send our way, you can find us at wejustliketotalk.com. Find us on Facebook or send us an email at wejustliketotalk at gmail.com. And stay tuned for part two, where Becky and I discuss social media more generally, and the changes that we would like to see in the future. Thanks for listening. 